This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Now, talking about our speaker today, Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky is Professor of Psychology at the University of California, Riverside. Originally from Russia, she graduated cum laude from Harvard and then completed PhD in social personality psychology from Stanford. The majority of her research career has focused on studies of human happiness. Her research addresses three main questions. What makes people happy? Is happiness a good thing? And how can we make people even happier? Her first book that was published in 2008 was titled The How of Happiness, a scientific approach to getting the life you want. It was published by the Penguin Press. It has been translated into 22 languages and published in more than 30 countries. She has appeared on a number of TV shows, radio shows, feature documentaries, and her work has been written up in numerous magazines, newspapers, all over the world. North America, South America, Europe, Asia, the Middle East. Just recently, last year, she published another book that is titled The Myths of Happiness, What Should Make Us So Happy But Doesn't, and What Should Not Make You Happy But Does. <laughs> uh, her teaching and mentoring of students have been well recognized, and she has received both Faculty of the Year Award and Faculty Mentor of the Year Award. And her research has been supported by John Templeton Foundation, a Science of Generosity Grant, a Templeton Positive Psychology Prize, and last but not least, a million dollar grant from the National Institute of Mental Health. So please give me a hand in welcoming Dr. <laughs> So I'm going to talk about my research on happiness. These are my collaborators, my graduate students and colleagues that I do my research with. Um, so I do work on happiness, and um, you know, I'm not an aging researcher, but I, I wholeheartedly believe that everything that I'm going to tell you about today is relevant to all age groups across the lifespan and relevant to aging. Um, I can't promise that I'm going to make you all happier, but I'm going to arm you with lots of information. So um, who today... Um, would like to be happier? How many would like to be happier? Okay. And how many uh, wish that their kids, spouses, friends, coworkers were happier? Yeah, I'll raise my hand too. Um, you know, um, during World War II, aviation experts uh, deployed a lot of um, resources and energies into studying military planes that went down. And one day somebody asked, why don't we study the planes that stay up in the air? 
Um, and I think this is an apt metaphor for um, the work that my colleagues and I do in the, this field called positive psychology. We study why happy people are happy, uh, why successful people are successful, and why healthy people are healthy. This is the How of Happiness book that I'll be talking a lot about it because a lot of the content is from that book. Uh, how important is happiness to people? Um, I would argue that most of us want to be happy. Uh, we might use different language to describe you know, happiness, define it differently, but I believe that almost everything that we do in our lives um, is sort of aimed at becoming happier. And Americans especially, you know, uh, happiness is embedded in our Declaration of Independence. You know, there's, some people might argue there's sort of an obsession with happiness in the United States. So researchers actually have gone around the world and they ask people, what are your top goals in life? And sort of on a scale from one to seven, uh, how important is happiness to you? So here are data for a few countries. Um, oh, I haven't, I'm only showing US right now. Um, and so you see uh, people in the United States uh, rate happiness, you know, very important, right? Almost a seven, which is the highest rating you can give. So, uh, and you might argue that uh, people in other countries might have different, um, you know, prescriptives, different norms about the pursuit of happiness. It may be considered, in Asian cultures, for example, it may be considered arrogant or selfish to be sort of pursuing happiness for yourself. So you might, might, um, predict that there might be cultural differences. And we'll talk about culture also in this, in this lecture. Um, but here are the data from the other countries. It looks like all around the world people say that it's, happiness is important to them. I should mention, by the way, there are some significant differences here. So for example, uh, the Germans uh, rate happiness as significantly less important. It's still very high, but it's less important than um, some of the other countries. So I do believe that happiness is a, a near universal goal. Um, and I come from Russia where um, you know, people talk about the importance of suffering. <laughs> so you know, suffering is important to build character and uh, maybe gain salvation in the next life. Um, and so there's not, not very much of a pursuit of happiness there. Um, I'm not sure if you saw that in the Olympics, but um, if you walk down the street uh, in Moscow, you won't see too many smiles. Um, but uh, if you ask parents in Russia, what do you want most for your children? They'll say, I want my children to be happy. So I think you have to kind of ask the question the right way. Uh, okay, so happy, a lot of people want to be happy, but um, is happiness a worthwhile goal? I mean, is it, um, is, is, it, is it more than just feeling good? Are there benefits to being happy? Is it a good thing? Um, well, I have um, tried to answer that question. Uh, my colleagues and I did a, what's called a meta-analysis, which is a study of studies. We looked at 225 studies of happiness, and these studies had over 275,000 participants. And what we found is that happiness um, is more than just sort of a feeling, a good feeling, that happy people enjoy many advantages and many benefits. So we found that happy people are more productive at work and more creative. Um, we found that happier people make more money. They have better jobs, more flexible jobs. They're better leaders and negotiators. Happier people are, are uh, more likely to marry. They are less likely to get divorced. They have more friends. Um, and they're healthier. We're gonna, by, the, by the way, we're going to get back to some of these findings in more detail. Happy people even live longer. 
And you know, there's a, there's, some, there's a stereotype that people who are happy are kind of selfish and self-focused, self-centered, but actually research shows that the happier you are, the more other-focused you are. I mean, one, one interpretation is that um, you know, when you're sad or depressed, it's, it's adaptive for you to focus on yourself and try to figure out if there's a problem, right? Sadness is a signal that there's a problem that you have to attend to. And happy people, in a sense, have the luxury to focus outward and to help other people. Um, and happy people are more resilient. They cope better with stress and trauma. Now, um, the causal direction, of course, goes both ways. So, for example, um, happier people are more likely to get married, um, but also marriage makes people happy. And the studies that, I, that, that are listed there um, are both correlational studies, they're longitudinal studies, studies that look, people, look at people over time, and also experimental studies that try to induce happiness temporarily to see what happens. Um, as an example, when you look at marriage, um, one of my favorite studies looked at um, people's yearbook photos. Okay, go back, think back to your you know, college yearbooks, okay? And, you know, we all, I think most of us had photos, and most people smile in their yearbook photos. Now, there are two kinds of smiles. There are genuine smiles, which are called Duchenne smiles, and then there's sort of those fake, you know, insincere smiles, right? So it's very hard to, to fake a genuine smile because uh, it's not just about the, the mouth, it's about the eyes, right? You know you can tell someone's smiling by looking at their eyes. I mean, actors can do it. Some people can do it. But most of us can't fake it. And so researchers looked at these photos. These are all women. This was at Mills College. And I'm not sure if that's co-ed now, but it, it was... Uh, is it? It's not. It's still women's college. Okay, so um, uh, women's college. So it's all women subjects. Um, looking at whether their yearbook photos show genuine smiles. And the idea was that if you have genuine smiles in your photos, you're more likely to be happy. Okay, and there's a correlation. Um, so women who are more likely to smile genuinely at age 21 were more likely to get married by age 27 and had more fulfilling, more satisfying marriages at age 52. Isn't that amazing? So you could predict the quality of your marriage decades later from your yearbook photo. Um, I mean, that's just one of many really, really cool studies that are done in my field. Okay, so let's, let's go into more detail in some of this research. So I want to talk about health. Health, physical health is incredibly important, of course, especially as you get older. Um, and so uh, it turns out that happy people are healthier. There are a lot of longitudinal studies. So imagine that I give everyone here a questionnaire and I measure your happiness by asking you how happy you are. That's, that's generally the way that we measure happiness. No one else knows how happy you are but you. Um, I mean, I can also you know, see if you're smiling, things like that, or ask your spouse or friends if you're happy, but that's not as, uh, you know, they might get it wrong, right? Um, so uh, I might measure all of your happiness, and let's say um, then I go back and I contact all of you in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and then I see how healthy are you? Are you still alive? Um, to sort of see if there's a connection between happiness today and your health later on. So there are a lot of longitudinal studies. So here are some ex uh, examples of studies in this area. So um, people who are happy at one point in time have been found to have a lower incidence of strokes six years later, and this is found especially in men, and a lower incidence of coronary heart disease or ischemic heart disease 10 and 15 years later. If you have coronary heart disease, you're more likely to survive it up to 11 years later if you're happy today. 
Uh, if you have lung cancer, you're more likely to survive it three years later. Um, you're less likely to be on disability if uh, 11 years later, if you're happy today. And this is really intriguing. You're less likely to die in a car accident if you're happy. Why do you think that is? That's not the immune system, right? Maybe, maybe happier people are more likely to wear seat belts. Focus, right? In fact, some people said, um, have said to me, so if you're unhappy, maybe you have road rage or you're under stress, you're not focusing on the road as much. Less Sorry, what? Less alcohol abuse, that's right. And then you said happy people maybe walk more. Actually, that's a good one. Maybe they drive less. I mean, that would explain that finding. Oops. I've never heard that one, so. No, it's really good. It's not, it's not wacky at all. Um, and then happy people are less likely to die of all causes. They live longer. So I think really, really um, cool and interesting research. Um, let me explore one mechanism that someone mentioned, which is strong immune system. And this is one of my favorite studies. Some of you might have um, heard of this study. It's called the cold virus study. So in this study, there were healthy volunteers, and they completed a measure of happiness. Um, and then they were administered the cold virus into their nose. So, you know, like when you travel, when you're on an airplane, there's viruses in the air, in the airplane. And some people, like, always get sick when they travel. Some people don't. Or maybe sometimes you, you get sick, sometimes you don't. Why is that? All right, so maybe part of the answer could be uh, your immune system. So the idea is that every single person in the study was exposed to the cold virus. And the question was, who's going to actually get sick, right? Once you, Because you don't always get sick after being exposed to the cold virus. So the researchers uh, followed um, these participants. They actually quarantined them. They put them up in a hotel, I think it was more like a motel, for five days, and they monitored them for a month, and they measured, you know, did they, their symptoms, their host resistance to the common cold, uh, mucus levels, you know, how often they cough, etc. And what they found was that happier volunteers were less likely to develop a cold. Um, you know, arguing that um, perhaps happier people have stronger immune systems. Now, this is not an experiment, um, but they did try to control for things like age and ethnicity and body mass index. So, so it wasn't the case that the happier people just happened to be thinner or younger. You know? um, and, and interestingly, unhappiness was not related who got a cold. It was only happiness that was related. Um, so anyway, this suggests, and there's some st other studies like this. There's a more recent study that was done that um, gave people the hep B, hepatitis B um, uh, vaccination, and they found that happier people had a stronger immune response, stronger protective response to the vaccination than people who were less happy. So again, evidence that there is a stronger immune system. Okay, so um, let's get move on to another area of life, work, right? Work is really important. We spend many, many hours of our lives working. Um, so research shows that happier people are more productive and more creative. So let me sort of tell you about those studies a little bit. So here's an example of a study that was done at a government agency in California. Um, now, these are mostly men, um, age uh, average of 45 years old. Um, and so what the researchers did is they, they came into this workplace, um, and they measured how happy everyone was. And then they came back three and a half years later um, and then they had the managers rate every employee on different dimensions. Sorry, you had a question? Right, right. Oh, sorry. Um, 
So, and I mentioned this briefly, but I should have spent a little bit more time on it. So, as I mentioned, happiness is something that, we, there's no happiness thermometer, so you have to ask people how happy you are. So, so there are lots of valid, validated um, measure scales of happiness. So you ask people, how happy are you in general on a scale from one to seven? How satisfied with your life? How often do you experience positive emotions, negative emotions? So there's self-report scales that researchers use. And it's really the only way to measure happiness, but there's lots of um, evidence that the, they're valid and reliable measures. Okay, so um, the researchers measured happiness, then they came back three and a half years later, and they asked the department heads and managers to rate the employees on sort of how often do they offer um, good ideas at work? Do they have high goals for their performance? Do they pay attention when you're talking to them? Uh, and, do, and do they work well uh, on teams independently with others? Um, and what the researchers found is that happier employees um, three years earlier, three years ago, um, were rated as higher sort of on all these dimensions. They were sort of more effective at work. They were more productive at work. So I would argue, take the 25 happiest people sitting in this room, and in three years, you would be the most effective, uh, productive workers, or whatever you're doing. Um, so, um, so lots of studies that show the same finding. This is just one example. Okay, so some other researchers t use a different approach to this, to, to um, sort of studying happiness, and they try to manipulate happiness in the laboratory. So this study was done with medical doctors. These were all internists, and they gave them um, candy and chocolate. <laughs> now, they excluded people who were on diets, right, because giving them chocolate might actually make them less happy. Um, and they, um, the chocolate, they were given a gift of chocolate and candy, but they weren't allowed to eat it just yet, right? Because they didn't want sort of the effects of the eating, the physiological process of eating. Again, these were all doctors. They gave them this gift of chocolate and candy, so they, um, they got happier. And there's also a, a comparison group. There were people who were sort of in a neutral condition. Um, and then they had them take a test of creativity. Okay, so there's different ways of testing creativity. So this is a very common one called the remote associates test. And so you're given three words. And there's lots of these items. This is one. Um, and you're supposed to come up with a fourth word that relates to these three words. Any ideas, anyone? Any What? Night. night that's right. Nightclub, nightgown, nightmare. You see that? Yeah, once you see it, you're like, yeah, of course. Um, so it's, it's one test of popular test of creativity, and the, as I said, there's lots of these items. And the idea is that if you're quick and good at, at doing these items, you're more, you're, um, you sort of show more flexible thinking, more creative thinking. And what they found was these doctors, the, doc the ones who were given the candy, who were put in a happier mood, did better on this test. They were more creative. So it's kind of amazing. Uh, we also know that happier people have more friends and social support. I mentioned that they're, instead of being self-centered, they're actually more other-centered and more philanthropic. So in my lab, uh, with my students, we actually wonder if, you know, if happier people are more helpful, what if you asked sort of the average person to be more helpful, would they become happier? So we did a study with kids. Um, and so this was a study was done in Vancouver. That's a picture of Vancouver. Very pretty. Um, we went to the Vancouver School District and went to 19 different classrooms in 11 middle schools. And the study was done with fourth, fifth, and sixth grade students. These are just information about the study. And then um, 
here was our design. So we had in 10 classrooms, we asked the students to do acts of kindness. So for four weeks, they did three acts of kindness a week. So, so I don't know if it's, I'm sure some of you have you know, children or grandchildren. You, know, you just ask these kids, do three acts of kindness, something that you don't normally do um, every week for four weeks. And then we had a control group, a comparison group, and the comparison group just um, told that they went to three places. They told us where they went. So the comparison group, we wanted them to do something, but it wasn't acts of kindness. Um, so we had uh, so three, three times four, 12 acts of kindness total, uh, plus uh, they went to uh, different uh, locations. So here's a, an example of what these students actually wrote. So here's a, uh, one of the kids in the acts of kindness. So he vacuumed the floor. Uh, clean the dining table. Notice that the spelling of Canadians are no better is no better than <laughs> the spelling of uh, U.S. students. And hugging my mom when she's stressed by her job. That's cute. So, and and a lot of them were like this. It was really great to read. And most of them were done in the home. Um, okay. And here's a student who wrote down where they went that week. So they went to the Richmond Shopping Center. Center spelled the Canadian way. Uh, track and swimming, Hillcrest. Okay, so three places they went. So this was the neutral group. And so what we found was, okay, so then we measured happiness, but we also were interested in um, whether um, this, manipula- this intervention um, influenced what we call peer acceptance, which is basically popularity. So we had all the students nominate everyone in their class as sort of who would you want to be in activities with, who would you want to play with. And this is a standard measure of peer acceptance. And what we found, and it's kind of amazing, that the students who did acts of kindness, not only did they get happier, but they were more likely to be nominated by other students in their classes um, as someone that they want to uh, play with, do activities with. So this is a histogram. So these are changes in nominations from before to after the study was over. So, so the kids who did acts of kindness, even when those acts of kindness were at home, became more popular with their peers in the classroom. So I think something, I think it's kind of an amazing finding, something rubbed off on them you know, when they came back into the classroom. Maybe they just were happier or more self-confident or more optimistic or something like that. So that's an example of one of our studies. Okay, so um, we know. Okay, so we know that happiness is um, an important goal to people around the world. We know that it's a worthwhile goal, right? Happiness is associated with lots of advantages and benefits in life. Um, but unfortunately, I think that a lot of us have the wrong idea of what will make us happy. And maybe they're also the wrong idea of what we think will make us really unhappy. And so my latest book, The Myths of Happiness, is about that. It's sort of about misconceptions that people have about what, they'll, what will make them happy or what will make them unhappy. So I'm going to explore that for a little bit. Okay, so um, uh, the happiness myth that I discuss in the book are things like, I, I'll only be happy when I get married. I'll only be happy when I have kids, when I find the right job, when I strike it rich. Um, or I can't ever be happy if I'm divorced, if I'm single, I don't find a partner, if I don't have a lot of money, if my dreams don't have come true, if I've gotten sick and when I'm old. A lot of people dread being getting older, especially with unfulfilled dreams. So we're going to talk about all of these things. Now, I'm not, now, these are all happiness myths. Now, I'm not saying that we should all get divorced and squander our money, right? But we have to kind of, um, I guess, understand 
what, what research has shown truly makes people happy and what, what it shows does not make people happy. So let me start with divorce, okay? So um, um, I'm going to show you some data from a very large study that followed people across many years. And in this case, this is about 12, 15 years before and after major life events. Okay, so these were thousands of people. By the way, these data that I'm presenting are for women, but the data for men are almost identical. I just didn't want to give you a lot of graphs. So year zero, so this is, a, this is happiness across time, okay? And zero is the baseline. And year zero is the year that something happens, okay? In this case, this is divorce. So these people are all getting divorced. Now, they don't know they're getting divorced because the study starts four years before they get divorced. Okay, got it? So here's, here, here's their happiness four years before. By the way, whatever you see in asterisk, um, that means that their happiness has either dipped significantly below their baseline or it's increased significantly above their baseline. So you see the lowest point is, what is that, two years before the divorce. Does that make sense? That's kind of like the low point is two years. Not year zero. By that time, maybe like the worst is over, okay? Look at that. So at year four, it takes four years. At year four, people are already significantly above their baseline in year five as well. Now, I should, I should, the caveat is the baseline is whatever's kind of before here, and it could have been already a little bit depressed, right? So maybe for years people were unhappy. We're not sure about that because we only captured them four or five years before. Here are the same kind of data for people who are laid off at work. Okay, so here's happiness. Um, year zero is the year of the layoff. You see a year before, maybe things are happening, right? Maybe the economy is, is, is not doing well. Maybe you know that layoffs are, are coming, right, in your, in your company. So, year, so negative one and year zero, those are the lowest years. By year um, four, I guess that is, three, four, you're already a lot happier. Now, um, a lot of people are reemployed at this point. We, we don't know from this data. Okay, so now here's widowhood. Now, these are people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s who have been widowed, um, and happiness dips tremendously, not surprisingly. So you have, um, again, negative one the year before. You already have a dip. Uh, you know, pretty obvious that the, the spouse is probably already ill, and maybe they're taking care of them. Uh, year zero is the worst. Um, and then um, year one, you're still way below, and it takes five years before people are um, kind of above their baseline. Um, again, this is an average, and actually it's, been, it's interesting to look at individual differences because in this study, it was found that some people um, you know, dip in happiness after losing their spouse, and then they never recover. So on average, people recover. Some people, though, never recover. And then interestingly, there were a subset of people who got a lot happier after the, after the death. And probably, you know, well, I, my guess is that maybe they had made, you know, really major um, caregiving responsibilities. Um, so, so, yeah, there are individual differences, and that's actually what make, makes, makes this so interesting. So, um, you know, basically um, what I, what I want to conclude from, from these studies is that people are so resilient. We think... If I lose my spouse, if I get laid off, if I get divorced, you know, I'll be 
unhappy forever. It's hard to sort of see beyond that unhappiness. And it turns out that on average, people bounce back incredibly well, not from everything, but from many things. Um, and so that's sort of the, the, one of the main take-home points, is that almost nothing is as misery-inducing as we think it is. Um, uh, there's a study that was done with women survivors of breast cancer. And two, this is amazing. Two-thirds of the women breast cancer survivors say that the cancer made a positive change in their life, that it was a wake-up call, that it, it sort of... Um, made them realize that life is precious, gave them a new appreciation for life, um, made them realize what their true priorities are. Maybe they want to be an artist or a writer or a teacher. Maybe, you know, whatever it was. Maybe it's family over work or work over family. Um, a lot of people say, a lot of people who've experienced adversity, like losing a job or um, becoming ill, they say that they realize that they have strengths that they didn't know they had. Um, they might, maybe it's courage, maybe it's humility, maybe it's just the ability to get through the day. Um, and a lot of people also say that they learn who their true friends are uh, after adversity. So um, it's kind of amazing. Again, like people are so uh, resilient and so positive. Um, so I think, um, and I'm going to continue talking about these myths. So I think a lot of these are of our myths that, you know, if I get divorced, I'll be forever unhappy. If I'm single, okay, so it turns out that people who are single all their lives are just as happy as people who are married. Um, and especially women who have been single all their lives, this is kind of amazing, they have an average of about a dozen lifelong friendships, really, really close friendships. So those of you who are married or have children, you know, how many of you can say, I have 12 you know, really, really, really close friends with whom I keep in touch with you know, a lot? Um, so being single is not a recipe for, for misery. Um, money, I have a whole chapter in my book about how you, know, how you can spend money in ways that, can, that make you happy. So money does make people happy. It sort of depends how you spend it. Um, um, aging, okay, let me talk about aging. A lot of people think that I don't want to be old uh, because um, I'm going to be unhappy. But it turns out that older people are us happy or happier than younger people. Now there's... Some inconsistency in the evidence. There's lots of studies, but this, I'm going to show you what I think is the pattern from most studies. Um, so this is, this is happiness or life satisfaction, which is um, part of happiness. Um, over the course of the lifespan, so this is starting from age 40 to 85. And so this shows what most studies show, which is that happiness increases um, sort of over the life course as you can see, from 40 to 50 to 60. And it tends to kind of um, uh, peak um, sometimes at 65 or late 60s or 70s, 70. That's where it peaks. And then it starts decreasing again. There's research that suggests that older people, in a sense, are emotionally wiser. It's like they know what makes them happy and they know what makes them unhappy. And so they stay away from situations that... Uh, make them unhappy, or people who make them unhappy. Um, so younger people are more, take more risks. And so there's lots of good things about risks, but there's also some costs, which is that you might, it might make you unhappy. So um, there are really very few gender differences in happiness and across age. Um, the biggest one is, and this is not going to surprise anyone, um, so women are kind of like this in happiness, right? 
they go up and down, and men are kind of like this, right? So women are much more volat volatile, more labile. Um, and women are more likely to be really happy, but they're also more likely to be depressed. So there's, there's a big gender difference in depression, clinical depression, clinical anxiety. On the other hand, men are more likely to uh, have substance abuse disorders and other things. So, so basically, the way I see it is women have higher highs and lower lows, but on average, if you compare to men, there's no difference. Okay, so um, getting back sort of to the take-home points, people are remarkably resilient. They get used to or adapt to adversity. But this resilience has a sort of dark side, okay? And the, the, the reason I call it a dark side is that we're, we're really good at adapting to the negative things in life, but we're also really good at adapting to the positive side of life, too. And this is called hedonic adaptation. So it's sort of good to get used to the fact that, let's say, you have to move. Let's say sometimes, sometimes you have to downsize, right? You move from a, maybe, maybe the economy has a di downturn, and you downsize from a larger home to a smaller home. That's really hard at first, but then you get used to it. My brother actually had to downsize. And he said it was just, and he had three kids. They walked into this new apartment and just like, oh my God, you know, how can we all fit into this little space? Like uh, six months to a year later, they were so happy there. They're like, why did we ever have a house? It was so hard to take care of. This is great. So you get used to downsizing. The same thing happens when you move into a bigger home. Anyone here moved into a bigger home from a smaller home? I bet a lot of people have. At first, it's really great. And then you just get used to it. Okay, so let's talk about um, adaptation to positive things. Okay, so here's marriage. Okay, so same study, follow people from before they got married to after. A year before the wedding, you're already happier than normal, right? Maybe you're engaged or you're in a great new relationship. The year of the wedding, that's year zero. You're, you're at your peak. How long does it take to adapt to marriage? <laughs> not, not long, right? Uh, again, on average. So there are some people who get married and they go up and then they stay at that increased level of happiness forever. Isn't that amazing? How do they do that? That's what researchers are interested in. What are they doing differently? Some people in this data set go right down. Right after the wedding, they get unhappy. So I don't know what's going on there. So that's, you think, oh, I'll be happy when I get married. Actually, research shows... Yeah, you'll be happy for two years. Um, now, there's, there's other kind of, I should say, there's caveats. So, for example, it turns out that happier people, as we actually already said, happier people are more likely to get married in the first place. So that's a, that's a caveat. Okay, so take-home points. There's no magic formula for happiness, and there's no sure course towards misery. And so we need to understand that sort of life's turning points, the decision to get married or divorced, um, to, to stay single or not, uh, to take a new job, doesn't have to be a crisis. And that we have to know that when we're less excited about a job or a relationship or a house, that that's just natural. That is hedonic adaptation. That's a normal part of life. Um, because failing to grasp these myths might lead people to feel like there's something wrong with me. So if I'm, if I'm not as excited about my marriage two years into it or five, ten years into it, I think maybe there's something wrong with me, maybe there's something wrong with my spouse. Um, uh, and so we might jettison perfectly good relationships or jobs or cars or whatever because we don't realize the power of hedonic adaptation. We all know people who kind of go from one job to another, right? Because the moment the thrill fades... 
They're looking for another job. Same thing with relationships, right? We know people who do that with relationships as well. So um, that's just something that we have to keep in mind. doesn't mean that we should never you know, change jobs or relationships, but uh, we just have to kind of do it with open eyes. And so how do you keep the excitement alive? Right? Hedonic adaptation is, again, very powerful. Uh, well, one of the keys is appreciation, is, and I'm going to talk about this later, basically gratitude, um, to try to appreciate what you have, um, that is the biggest kind of um, strategy to prevent you from, from taking things for granted. Um, and then variety, novelty, and surprise are kind of the keys to um, keeping that excitement alive. Now, that's hard to do. Um, and so it's one reason that actually jobs and relationships that have a lot of novelty and variety and surprises in them at least the positive kind, um, you don't adapt to as well, right? If you have a job that's really dynamic and it allows you to grow as a person and, and travel and meet new people and learn new things, um, you know, you're not going to adapt to that kind of job as quickly. Um, so in any way that you can introduce challenge, growth, novelty, variety, surprise um, into your life. So what about children? Okay, let's, let's talk about children. Um, a year before you have, you have your first child, uh, you're already happier than you were before. Now, you're not pregnant yet, right? So you're, or your, spouse, your partner is not pregnant because it's a year. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe you're, you've decided you're going to have a baby or you're in a new relationship. Um, and then your happiness dips um, below the baseline and then kind of goes back to what it was before. So I should, I should say that um, I don't think this is really shocking to anyone. Um, but I think year three and four, what's probably happening during those years? You're probably having another child, likely, right? Um, many, many people, maybe it's the average, have another child like two to three years after the first one. Um, there's been a lot of um, discussions in the media about whether, um, you know, do children make people happy? Are you know, our parents happier or less happy? Are their parents miserable relative to people who don't have kids? So that's something that I've gotten interested in. And one of my students and I have a, a couple of papers on this topic. Um, and so uh, my grad students and I basically wrote this paper um, where we summarized all the research literature, kind of uh, are parents happier than people who don't have kids? And the, the answer is that it depends. Of course, it depends. You can't just kind of lump all parents and all people who don't have children. And what we found, these are sort of our main conclusions, that parents are happier than people who don't have kids if they're middle-aged or old. Okay, so, so if you're a parent and you're middle-aged or old, you're happier than people who are your age who don't have children. If... Um, now, and if you're a young parent, you're, you're less happy than your peers with children. That's, I think that's not surprising. Um, not only are you more mature and you have sort of more resources when you're older, but also, um, of course, age is related to the age of the child, right? So most people who are old don't have, you know, very young children. Um, and the younger the child, the, the harder, right, day-to-day -day life is. Um, and this is, this is sort of reflected in this finding that you're, ha you're happier as a parent if your kids are either in middle childhood or grown. Uh, okay, I'm going to ask you a question about, not about happiness in general, but about marital satisfaction or happiness in your marriage. Okay, so um, when you think about the, the life course of a marriage, you know, you have sort of the honeymoon phase, you first meet, 
you have the phase where, assuming you have children, um, you have children sort of that are very, very young, under five. You have kind of the middle child age. Then you have sort of when your kids are teenagers. And then you have the empty nest that kids have flown the nest, right? So in terms of marital satisfaction, what do you think is the happiest time for a marriage? You know, it's kind of amazing, right? This is the, 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 that's right, it's the empty nest. I've never had an audience get it right. And you all said the same thing, it's the empty nest. Right, because I think maybe many of you have experienced the empty nest. Um, and then, as you say, this is not necessarily for overall happiness, but happiness in a marriage. Empty nest. What do you think is the second happiest time in a marriage? Okay, so that's, that's right. That's exactly right. It's the honeymoon period. What do you think is the least happy time in a marriage? Teenagers. You guys are amazing. I've never had this experience where you got it all right. People say... So people, pe- most people say that it's when your kids are really little, that's when you're the least happy, but that's not true. It's when they're teenagers, that's the hardest, for, for the marriage. And the second hardest is when they're under five. So I have two teenagers and two under five. <laughs> um, so, but we're doing good, though, we're doing good. Okay, so um, they're married, so married parents, it's good to, if you're married, you're, you're happier as a parent than people, um, that married people who don't have kids, as opposed to um, if you're single, a single parent. That's not surprising. Um, if you're, fa- okay, so fathers, fathers are happier than men without children, and mothers are about as happy as women who don't have children. But, uh, and there's various explanations for that. Some people think, well, the burden of, of parenthood falls on, on women. Maybe that's why. But actually, in, in data that I have looked at, it turns out that men who don't have kids are particularly unhappy. So they, they're kind of depressing this. Um, their children live with them. So if you're a non-custodial parent, like if you're divorced and you don't have custody of your kids, you're particularly unhappy. Um, if you have kids who are biological or adopt- adopted, you're happier than people who don't have kids. Um, step-parents don't tend to be very happy. Step-parents. Um, and your children are relatively trouble-free. That's kind of obvious, right? Of course, I put the relatively there because there are no trouble-free children, right? Um, but in all of the research overall, no matter what kind of parent you are, no matter what category of parent you are, Parents tend to report that they have more meaning in life than people who don't have children. So um, it doesn't mean that you can't get meaning from other things aside from, from children, but that's the finding. Okay, so we've talked about you know, the, import, the benefits of happiness, sort of misconceptions that people have about happiness. So what about, so can we actually become happier? Um, is it possible to become happier? And if it's possible, can we sort of sustain that? That's kind of like the million-dollar question, right? That's what you all want to know, or some of you want to know. Um, well, the self-help books, books stores, um, bookshelves, I don't know how many people go to bookstores, but where book, either real bookstores or virtual bookstores, they're full of self-help books, okay? And a lot of them are about happiness. I'm going to show you a few examples. So... Um, Here's an example of a, of a bestseller. It's called Happiness is Free, and it's easier than you think. Now, interestingly, the kind of the conclusion of my research is that happiness is harder than you think, um, not easier. But, you know, it's, it's, you can't sell books sort of 
when you call them like happiness is really hard right so right people want to people and, it, and it's interesting because I'm often um, interviewed by media and especially the women's magazines uh, tend to ask me questions like okay I want five or I want ten five minute happiness strategies five minute happiness strategies I'm like well I, I don't have any five minute how can you become happier in five minutes so um you could sort of argue this is the American way, right? Like we want quick and easy, you know, what's the secret to happiness? Um, you can be happy no matter what, happy for no reason. And my favorite book, You Can Be the Wife of a Happy Husband. Uh, I know, so thank you for noticing that. This is a terrible book. I, okay, I usually don't judge books. I'm very positive, but... This is like a real retro book. Like maybe it wasn't retro because it was written in 77. So it basically argues that women should be submissive and kind of do what their husbands want. That's how you become a wife of a happy husband. Okay. So for a long time, researchers were actually pessimistic about whether you can become happier. I mean, so there are all these books out there, and they say you can be happy really easily. Most of the books are not based on any evidence. They're just someone's opinion or anecdotal kind of evidence. So, um, so we kind of looked at the research, and so scientists have thought, well, maybe people can't become happier. So, so there here are three reasons to be pessimistic. So one... You know, there's genetic influences on happiness. So those of you who have more than one child, you know, some, some of your kids are happier than others, right? It's like you feel like you, you, you don't treat them differently. They're raised, in the same, they're raised in the same household, but they're like these incredibly strong genetic differences that are evident at birth. And so there, there, are, um, there are strong genetic influences on happiness. Um, there's research that's conducted in a field called behavior genetics, and what researchers do is they compare how similar are identical twins in their happiness level. So remember, identical twins share 100% of their DNA. And then they compare how similar are fraternal twins. Fraternal twins share 50% of their DNA. They're basically like, they're just like siblings, two siblings. Um, and it turns out that identical twins are much more similar in their happiness, right? So if you're an identical twin, either you're both really happy, you're both really unhappy, um, Fraternal twins are much less similar. So these data suggest that there's a strong heritability component to happiness. Okay? So if that's the case, then how can we become happier? Right? Isn't, it, isn't it true that you only have it or you don't? Right? Now, I, I don't think that's true, but I'm kind of being a devil's advocate right, right now. now. Now, there's also evidence that happiness is a trait. It's part of our personality. And personality is something that doesn't change very much over time. Going back to those yearbooks, those college yearbooks or high school yearbooks, remember the happiest people? And I don't mean happy because they, I don't know, were for a reason, like because something good happened to them, but they just were sort of happy naturally. Think of the happiest people in your high school class. If you saw them today, they would probably still be the happiest sort of in the group. So the, rank, the ranks are relatively, uh, maintain the same. Um, and so happiness is, a, is sort of a light, it's, it's stable over the life, tends to be fairly stable. Um, so if that's the case, if happiness is part of your personality, then how can you change it, right? Isn't it hard to change your personality? And then finally, we've already been talking about hedonic adaptation. We adapt to almost all things positive that happen to us, right? Remember, marriage, children. 
you know, buying a new house, getting a raise in salary, winning the lottery. Uh, research shows that people who win the lottery adapt to winning the lottery. So if we adapt to anything positive, then how can we ever become happier, right? So these are all sort of reasons that we should be pessimistic about the pursuit of happiness. Um, now, I wouldn't be here if I really bought sort of into all of these um, concerns. And so my argument, and I'm just going to kind of summarize it in one, um, one paragraph, is that despite the finding that our happiness is partially genetically determined, and despite the finding that our life situations actually don't influence our happiness as much as we think they will because of hedonic adaptation, still I argue a very large part of happiness is under our control, sort of is, is under our power to change, increase or decrease by the ways that we think and by the ways that we behave. This is a pie chart um, that is very simplistic, so I don't want you to take it too seriously. Um, these numbers come from a lot of studies. They're estimates and averages from many past studies, but essentially what we argue is um, when we ask the question, what determines happiness, about 50% of individual differences in happiness are explained by genetics. Um, now, 50% is not 100%. About 10% are explained by life circumstances. Now, a lot of people are shocked to see that, right? Because they think, if only I were richer, I'd be happier, right? If only I could change my life circumstances some way, I'll be happier. Now, I should say that if you're in a really bad situation, if you're poor and you don't have your, if you don't have health care, you don't have safety, you don't have a shelter, then of course more money is going to make you happier. If you're in, a, in an abusive relationship, then of course getting out of that relationship is going to make you happier. But once you're sort of comfortable, if you're sort of okay, then improving your life circumstances even more is not going to make as much of a difference as you think it will. And so this leaves 40% for what I call intentional activities. These are things that we can all do to increase our happiness or decrease it, but most people want to increase it. Okay, so what are the things that we can do? There are like a hundred things we can do to become happier. You're not gonna, nothing, this is not gonna shock anyone. Expressing gratitude and appreciation has been found to make people happier. Doing acts of kindness, trying to be more forgiving, being more optimistic, investing in our relationships, practicing our religion if we have a religion, meditating, exercising. Um, so my first book, The How of Happiness, has a chapter essentially a chapter or a section for, all, for each of these strategies. It goes through what they are, what's the evidence behind them, how can you implement them. So these are all things that we can do to become happier. So what I do in my research is I basically test these strategies to see if they really work. Okay, so what I do uh, are called interventions. So an intervention is basically um, an experiment in which people are prompted to, to change themselves in some positive way. Um, and what I do are essentially like, they're kind of like clinical trials. You know, in clinical trials, researchers test, say, the efficacy of a new drug or a new medical treatment. And they also test things like dosage, you know, how much, how much of the treatment should the person get, how often. And I also look at things like dosage and, you know, how often you should, you know, count your blessings and things like that. Okay, so here are some examples of happiness interventions we've conducted. Over the course of one to three months, we have volunteers or participants come into our studies, and we ask them, do it, like I already showed you the kids, remember the Vancouver students? We ask them to do acts of kindness on a regular basis or 
write gratitude letters or affirm their most important values. And then we follow them across time. We measure their happiness, usually before, in the middle, after. You know, usually there's a follow-up to see if what they're doing is making them happier. Uh, and then my lab's focus is not only in sort of do these things make people happy, but why and how. Sort of what are the factors that underlie sort of the success of why is it that trying to be more grateful makes people happier. So I'm just going to show you some examples really quick of the studies that I've done. And you could kind of try to practice this yourself if you want. Um, okay, so we did a study where we asked people to count their blessings. Now you all know what that is, right? Kind of keeping a gratitude journal where you write down um, what you're grateful for. So here in these instructions we use, there are many things in our lives that we might be grateful about. Think over the events of the past week and write down up to five things that you're grateful for. Now this study was six weeks long, so every week you do this. And we had different conditions. We had a control group, but we also had a group you either did this once a week, like every Sunday night, you write down what you're grateful for, or three times a week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, you write down what you're grateful for. And what we found was kind of interesting. We found that, okay, so these, this is a histogram, and it shows changes in gratitude and changes in happiness from before to after the six-week intervention. So if you see the bar going up, that means that people are getting happier. So you can first look at gratitude, people became more grateful when they counted their blessings once a week. Do you see that? So the control group is in green, and it's not changing in gratitude. But the people who tried to be grateful three times a week, they did not get grateful. <laughs> Interesting, okay? And then the same thing, and then for changes in happiness, the control group actually got less happy. We could talk about that later, why that happened. Um, but you see, if you, try, if you counted your blessings once a week, you got happier. Three times a week, you didn't. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I said it's interesting. So someone said a chore, and I think that's true, that if you kind of do something too much, and this is the dosage, right? You have to have the right dosage. If you, do, if you give too much dosage, it's going to lose its, lose its meaning or freshness. And then it could be that if you try to count your blessings too much, you, you sort of can't, you can't come up with things to be grateful for, right? And that could backfire. In fact, one study I really like was done in, uh, co in colleges, universities, and they asked students after taking a course, they said, list 20 things that you liked about your professor. Okay? That's a lot, right? <laughs> Too many. Or they asked, list five things that you liked about your professor. Who liked the professor more overall? The ones who list five things, right? Because the ones who listed 20 things... Right, they, they couldn't come up with 20 things, so they could have concluded, oh, I must not like that professor so much. So maybe the same thing with counting blessings. Okay, so this was, this was a demonstration of the importance of dosage. So these are, this is a list of sort of factors that I'm studying that are important to um, keep in mind, kind of how to implement positive activities in the most optimal way. So dosage is critical. Okay, now what about fit? My argument is that it's important to choose the strategy that's, that's right for you. Now, when, sometimes when I talk about counting blessings, people kind of roll their eyes. They're like, oh, counting. I mean, they, they just find it so trite and kind of hokey to count your blessings. And so I would say that the fit is not good. So don't do that, right? If it doesn't feel natural to you, uh, if, you if, if you don't enjoy it, so you have to choose the strategy that works best. Kind of like if you exercise, 
you know, some people like running, some people like swimming, you know, some people like dancing, whatever. You choose the, the exercise that you like the best. So there's different kinds of fit. Um, and so one way that I've studied this question is I have a, there's an iPhone app that's based on my first book, The Health Happiness. It's called Live Happy. And just uh, full disclosure is I don't make any money from this app. Maybe I should, but I don't. Um, so, um, and what it does is it gives, it has eight different happiness activities. These are screenshots um, that people can use, they can use their phones to engage in these activities, right? So things like uh, keeping a gratitude journal, that's the bottom, that's top left, um, uh, setting goals. Um, one, my favorite is this one, the bottom left, which is the savoring uh, album. Um, and there you use your phone to, you can take a picture of something, someone you love or something beautiful and you write about it. Or you can go into your uh, photos, your photo album and choose a photo. So here's a picture of me on vacation with my daughter, you know, and how great that was. So you sort of savor your positive experiences. So anyway, people can use their um, phones to engage in these eight different positive activities. And I ask them, how happy are you? Um, and I ask them, how do you feel natural doing this? Do you enjoy doing this? So, so there's a measure of fit. And what I find is the more that the activity fits your personality, the more you do it, and the more you do it, the happier you get. So here's a, a chart that sort of shows fit with different activities. This is on average. So most people, their favorite activity was, it's called the best possible self. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. That's when you imagine like all your dreams coming true in, your, in the future. And then this is the, the, in green is sort of the key finding. The higher the fit with a particular activity, the more likely users tried that activity and the more they benefited from that activity. So fit is really important. Now, and here's a study that showed the importance of motivation. So here's a study where I had people either try to be more grateful or optimistic, and then I had people who, were, who wanted to become happier, they were motivated to become happy, or people who were not motivated. And so I found the red bars are the motivated people, and the green bars are the non-motivated people. And I found that um, this is after an eight-week intervention the more motivated you are, sort of the more you benefit. So again, that seems kind of obvious, but often scientists have to kind of test obvious hypotheses. So if you're really motivated to be happy, you put more effort into it, you, you're more serious about it, right? You take it seriously. Okay, so person activity fit and motivation are important. Now what about social support? I am a runner, and um, I'm much better at running when I have a friend, sort of a buddy who does it with me. And I, we run in, early in the mornings. And so, um, um, and so I know if she's going to be there at like 7 or 6.45 in the morning, you know, I get up, right? Like I don't want to turn the alarm off and go back to sleep because I know she's going to wait for me. And I'm sure I have the same effect on her. Um, so... I think social support, sort of having a buddy to do this with, or just, or just having a family or even a culture that kind of supports your goals is important. So here's a study where we ask people to, um, to do this best possible self-activity. Okay, so all of you, you can do this, try to do this. So imagine in five years, you are exactly where you want to be. You're sort of your best possible self in terms of your health, in terms of your relationships, your work, hobbies, whatever, anything. Um, and that's, that's called the best possible self. And that, basically that's a, a way to practice your optimistic muscles to try to be more positive about the future. 
the red bar is people got happier when they tried to be more optimistic. The control group, they got a little bit less happy. But when they had social support, when they had sort of peers that were, um, that were kind of supporting them, endorsing their goals, they got even more happy, right? So basically you get more out of it when you have social support, when you have friends, buddies, peers that help you. So that's just the importance of social support. Now, this is one of the most interesting things I want to talk about, which is culture. Okay, so remember we talked a little bit about culture, about how there are cultural differences in the pursuit of happiness, and some cultures maybe aren't really, like, not like the U.S., they're not really as sort of, they don't endorse um, the pursuit of happiness as much. So we did a study in... Um, in South Korea with students. We had two different samples of students. We had um, students from Seoul National University and students from UC Riverside, where I am a professor. Um, and then we had two groups. Either students wrote gratitude letters um, or they did acts of kindness. Um, and this is what we found. It's so interesting. Okay, so look at the American students first. Um, so they got happier over time when they practiced gratitude. That's the whatever, teal, I don't know what color that is, um, the teal bar, uh, line. And when they did acts of kindness, they got happier. That's the red line. Okay, so this is the American students. So that's what you would expect. And look, now I'm going to show you the Korean students. See that interesting? When they practiced kindness, they got a little happier. But when they practiced gratitude, they got less happy. Okay. And this is actually, I think, an example of culture activity fit. Now, I would be interested in your, in your ideas or questions. What people have told me, our, our ideas are that gratitude is, can be kind of, um, can involve mixed emotions in, in Korea and maybe other Asian cultures, such that when you express gratitude, you might feel gratitude, but you also might feel indebtedness, Right? Because you're sort of thinking about these are people, by the way, people who wrote gratitude letters to someone in their life who there who was kind to them. You might feel some indebtedness. Maybe you might feel some guilt. So there's sort of not. It's not all positive. So that's that's our idea. Um, but we're exploring that. I think that's really interesting. And then here's another interesting finding from the same study. Um, that's so that's the importance of culture. But let's look at effort. Okay. So the same study in American students. Um, the more effort they put in, the happier they got, right? That makes sense. So the red line is high effort, right? So they got a lot happier. Green line, medium effort, they got happier. Low effort, no, no difference, right? And that, is, that makes sense, right? If you don't put the effort into it, you're not going to get happier. Now look at Koreans. Still you have the, the effort difference, but it's much smaller. So it, it, it mattered less how much effort there was. Um, so anyway, so that, that shows the importance of effort, Okay, um, so um, the conclusion of our research is that happiness takes work. Remember, happiness is harder than you think, rather than happiness is easier than you think. Uh, it takes effort, it takes motivation, it takes commitment. Um, so in terms of, and we're, we're sort of doing lots more studies. Um, what are we doing next? We're doing lots more positive interventions. Uh, we're trying to understand how they work. Why is it that doing acts of kindness makes you happier? Um, we're looking, uh, we're looking at age um, a little bit. So in, what's interesting is we have yet to find a study that showed us any kind of age differences, right? Basically, these kinds of positive activities, and I think you'll agree with me, they matter at all ages, right? And so, for example, um, we've done some studies with teenagers who you think, like, try to make teenagers more grateful, right? You think... <laughs> 
They're like the least grateful parts of our population. But um, they, some or many of them loved writing gratitude letters. And it's like they, what they told us is that they realized that they're ungrateful, that they're not grateful enough, and they needed to be more grateful. So that was really neat. Um, so we, did, we just finished a study. Oh, um, you know, okay, let, let me talk about depression for a second. So, so yeah, so age doesn't seem to matter. And it's, I mean, it, must, it matters sort of in how you do the strategies and maybe how they work, but, not, but they, they work across the lifespan. Now, um, people who get depressed at all ages, actually, interestingly, this is a kind of amazing, what was it? In 1950, the age of onset for clinical depression was 29 years old. And today, it's 14 and a half. 14 and a half. Um, but there's depression is a problem at all ages. I hope I got that right. That was from a study that I just read about. Um, so can we alleviate depressive symptoms with these positive interventions? Now, I'm not arguing that people should forego mental health treatment if they're depressed, but can we sort of supplement mental health treatment, maybe medication, with these interventions? So the question is... Um, would depressed individuals benefit more from our interventions? Maybe because they have more room to improve. This is called the floor effect, right? They have more room to improve, and they're more motivated. Or would they benefit less? Because, you know, depressed, if you're depressed, sometimes you can hardly get off the couch or the bed, right? It's, it's hard for you to do anything. What do you think? Which one, which one do you think it is? Or both? More? I think it would be more. Um, the truth, I, I don't know the answer to that question because some studies show one way, some studies show the other way. We did one study with depressed college students and we had them write gratitude letters and they got more depressed. I mean, not like really depressed, but they, they, you know, there was a little bit of slight negative effect. And we think from talking to them, they felt guilty. They felt like they couldn't think of anyone who to be grateful for. Or they felt like, oh, I should have reciprocated and I never did. They felt like a failure. So, like, you know, like when you're really depressed, thinking about anything can make you more depressed. You can kind of have a negative perspective on anything. Other studies that are much simpler, like asking people, just think of one good thing that happened today, anything, like the sun came out, then that, that is helpful. So, so I think we have to really work hard at developing sort of activities that might be fitting for someone who's depressed or anxious or... Um, you know, whatever, has, has an eating disorder, has an addiction, you know, different kinds of popu clinical populations might benefit diff with different strategies. Um, we also um, are doing a, a really exciting study, or just finished doing a really exciting study with, actually I have to fix that, 750 16-year-olds in the UK, and these are all twins, so we have 750 twins, um, and we're looking at whether there are genetic versus environmental influences on who benefits from an intervention and who doesn't. So sometimes you ask people, all right, go do acts of kindness, and, and people get a lot happier, but some people don't get much happier. And so what are their genetic influences on that? And we are finding right now a genetic influence on um, the extent to which people sort of stay happy even after the intervention is over. Um, and then, very exciting, we're, you know, I, I mentioned how you have to measure happiness by asking people, are they happy? And I think that's really important to do that. But we also want to look at behavior, sort of look at sort of more kind of unobtrusive measures and less biased measures. And so, um, lately we've been doing studies where we have people wear this badge around their necks. 
um, called a sociometric badge. And the badge has um, sort of a technology inside of it. It can measure how much you move. Kind of like, you know, if, you're, if you move your iPad screen or iPhone screen, you know how it changes orientation. So the same kind of technology, it's an accelerometer, um, can measure your what's called behavioral rhythm, how much you move. Uh, and also the badges sense each other. So if you're all wearing badges, I can see, I can tell like who's talking to whom and how much time you spend in social interaction. So we did a study in Japan, in Tokyo, um, and we asked people um, for six weeks to write down three things that went well this week at work. Okay, so very simple intervention. You could all try to do this. Write down once a week three things that went well. It could be at work, it could be at home. Um, and the control group wrote three things, three tasks that they accomplished that week. Okay, and what we found was the experimental group is in green. It's kind of weird. Okay, so people who were in the experimental group who wrote down three things that went well at work, they were most energetic earlier in the day. So you see that's 4 p.m. They kind of peaked earlier in the day at 4 p.m. versus at like 5 p.m. Um, and when they arrived to work, changes in initial rhythm, this is how energetic and how much they moved when they came to work, they had more energy in the mornings. So we're not even sure what that means yet, but, we're, um, but we think it's cool to kind of look at actual behavior and our, our interventions changing people's behavior. They're actually changing how much people are moving throughout the day. So, and I think this would be a cool, actually a really nice and effective sort of positive activity for everyone to sort of consider every week three things that went well that week. Very simple. And, and by the way, they got happier they, and they were more connected to other people. Okay, so... Um, the conclusion of my research, as I said, is happiness takes work, that it is possible to become happier one person at a time, but it's not easy. You have to put effort into it, um, and it has so many benefits, right? So not only will you feel better, you'll be, but there's all these advantages to happiness. You'll be healthier, more productive, more creative, a better leader, a better parent. Um, so I always like to uh, end my talks with a quote from Aristotle uh, because it nicely captures sort of the gist of my research, which is that happiness depends upon ourselves. Thank you. So I'm happy to take lots of questions. Yes. Thank you very much. So the first part of the question was about, am I concerned that that what I'm sort of saying is prescriptive? It's like I'm telling people what to do. And I am concerned about that, actually. So... What I try really hard is to tell people what the research shows. So I, I'm, I'm tr I mean, and I, I have said, oh, you should all try this, so maybe I shouldn't say that. Because what I try to do is say the research shows that writing letters of gratitude makes people happier. And so what I want to do is that you all can kind of hear that, and then you can draw your own conclusion, right? That you, some of you might say, okay, well, I'm going to try that too. I also try to make it clear this is not going to work for everyone because fit is really important. You have to kind of find the right fit. And dosage is important, all these other factors as well. Um, and in terms of poetry, okay, I'm glad you brought that up um, because research also shows that, I mean, there's really three things that are associated with happiness, and this is a correlation. One is 
connectedness, right? Connecting with other people. Another is contributing to the world, basically helping others. And the third is personal growth. And that is really anything that kind of helps you kind of grow as a person, um, learn new things, and experience sort of new things. And I would put poetry in the personal growth category. If that is something that doesn't mean that you, you read it because you want to grow, but it, it's something that, that helps you, it sort of makes your life richer. And so, um, and so I would, I think it's great. We should add that to our toolkit of experiences that can be associated with happiness for some people, right? For some other people, it could be art or it could be speaking a new language or, you know, traveling to different cultures. And for some people, it's going to be poetry. Thank you. Wow, these are really amazing questions. So I'm sorry, I, I, I do usually have um, some slides with the definition of happiness. I think, I don't know, I just made a decision. I couldn't fit everything in. So that was probably not wise to leave out the definition. Um, so um, there is a, a lot of debate about really two types of happiness. And one is called eudaimonic and one is called hedonic. So one happiness is really more about feeling good and feeling satisfied and experiencing positive emotions. And that's really more what I study. And the other type, eudaimonic well-being, which is really what Aristotle was talking about, um, is more related to sort of meaning and engagement, um, kind of living kind of a full life flourishing. Um, and actually, we could go for hours. We could sort of talk for hours about we can't really resolve the debate here. Um, but I really feel strongly that those two kinds of happiness are so intertwined. People, and there's lots of research to show this too, people who have meaning are happier. Happier people have more meaning and all of that. So they, they almost always go together. Um, and when you try to disentangle them, it actually is very difficult because happiness without meaning is, I guess it would be like pure pleasure or hedonism, but I wouldn't call that happiness. And then meaning without happiness, maybe that would be like Mother Teresa. You know, we found out after she died that she actually was really unhappy. Um, so if you're, you're doing good, but you're not happy doing it, um, maybe that's, that's, but I don't even, so anyway, so I don't, I think in most cases they go together. So, but yeah, I, I should have, I'm sorry, I should have gone more into that because that's kind of, uh, that's, that's the starting point, right, for this talk. So you're next, but then I'm, I'm going to go to the, sorry, you're next. Yeah. Right, right. So that's a great question. So he asked about whether people sort of lie if they if they're asked how happy they are. So this is called the social desirability bias, right? So it's socially desirable, at least in our culture, to be happy. Um, and there is, I think there is something to that, but there's been also um, lots and lots of research that just tried to develop measures of happiness that are unbiased. And it turns out that there's a very small proportion of participants who will actually either lie or are kind of in denial. I think there may be some people, very rare individuals, who don't really know how happy they are. Most of us know whether we're happy or not. And also the way that we do our studies, they're totally anonymous. And, sometimes, and often we used to do studies with pencil and paper, and then we switch to doing them on a computer. And was, interestingly, you have, you have fewer social desirability bias on the computer. For some reason, people, I don't know, when, it's, when they're typing on a screen, they are more honest, um, which I'm not sure why. I'm sure someone does research on that. Um, anyway, but those are really good questions, and lots of research has been done to try to address that, because that's a very important issue, right? If we have to be able to be confident that when people are saying that they're happy, they really are happy. I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to go to that gentleman. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I have to say, um, I once, <laughs> okay, I've never done laughter yoga, so I have heard of this, um, and there definitely are physiological uh, effects of laughing and smiling, too, so it turns out that if you smile, sort of, there's feedback into your brain that makes you feel a little bit happier even when you're faking it. Now, I once was on a radio show, and part of the show was everyone laughs. Okay, so it wasn't yoga, it was just laughing. Um, and they said, okay, you're going to be on the show, and you have to do this. You have to laugh. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. I just thought it was so silly and so hokey, right? I'm like, oh, I have to do it. And so, and, you know, people start laughing. I don't know how you start. You just have to kind of fake it, or maybe you think of something funny. And so I joined in, and it was amazing. I mean, it really, like, because first you laugh, and then you think it's so ridiculous that I'm laughing, that you actually are laughing at the fact that you're laughing. And you're laughing at other people, right? Because you're like, oh, they're so silly. And then you really are laughing for real. And yeah, it was, I mean, it made me really happy. So I have to say, I, I was such a skeptic, but I did, and I haven't really done it since then, so I should probably do it more. But yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, someone in the middle. Yeah, you and then you. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? That, that's, I don't know about the percentages, but you know what's interesting is um, as you age, your most kind of common emotional expressions sort of get imprinted, right, on your face. So like the, the lines on your face, if you smile a lot, you have smile lines. And so actually when you look at older people, you can kind of tell what their personality is a little bit more than younger people. Um, and so, that, so there's a little bit of research on that, right? So, um, and, and another study that I thought was so cool is um, Botox can actually... Uh, there's some small studies that have shown that Botox can sometimes relieve depression because the frown lines, kind of getting back to that facial feedback, can make you, first of all, feel unhappy. And also, of course, other people, if you look like you're frowning all the time, people are going to react more negatively to you, right, than if you smile. And so, um, so there's sort of social consequences as well. So, so emotional, facial expressions are really important. And there's a whole field, it's not my field, but there's a whole field on facial expressions, if you're interested. Uh, okay, sorry, I had, uh, yeah. Right, right. No, thank you for that. I'll, I'll kind of repeat a little bit. Um, when, I, when I talked about resilience and how people are so good at coping with adversity, and they often will come out of the adversity even stronger and happier than they were before, which is a little bit counterintuitive. Um, but I do want to kind of reiterate that when I talk about happiness, I'm not talking about people who are like smiling and cheerful and kind of jumping for joy. I mean, happiness is very internal. And the happiest people, you may not even realize sort of who's, I mean, they're kind of, I don't know, I guess they have a sense of like contentment or tranquility that, that might be evident. But I'm not, and I, yeah, so I'm not talking about kind of, and, and that good, and then happy people are not ones necessarily who are always experiencing all the kinds of good events, right? So, you know, if you live long enough, right, you're going to live through lots of ups and downs. Yeah. So you're talking about expression of happiness? Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of studies that just look at the um, surveys of people uh, across the world where they ask people how happy they are. Um, and, and in fact, you, if you, you might have seen these like in the newspaper. There's lots of surveys, and they always show that like the Scandinavian countries come up on top. You know, they, they report being the happiest. Um, and, and the countries that are the poorest or they have the most kind of conflict, uncertainty, uh, sort of political instability, economic instability, those tend to be the, un the least happy. Um, 
there's not really that much more. Uh, I mean, so a lot of it is just on sort of reports of happiness. Is that what you're talking about? Um, and then we can sort of talk about why, you know, the Danish often are found to be the, the happiest um, country. And uh, uh, one article I read actually um, found that Danish people um, had somewhat lower expectations. So that could have been responsible for that. Because um, we talk about, actually, I haven't really talked about this, but, when, you know, when you adapt to positive things, one reason you adapt is that you, your expectations or your aspirations rise, right? Like, it's like you move into a new house, and suddenly you want an even bigger house, right? You get more money, you want even more money. So, so keeping your um, expectations sort of not, from not rising too much, not escalating, is important. You know, you and then there's a lady in the back. Yeah, you'll be next. Yeah. You know, a lot of um, cities, in fact, the city of Santa Monica, where I live, has now uh, got a grant to kind of increase wellness, in uh, in the city, so um, they they haven't uh, they haven't decided what they're going to do yet. They're because they, the first the first thing you need to do is measure happiness, measure well being before you can kind of do anything. Um, but a lot of cities and countries now are becoming interested in at least measuring well being, right? Because we've always measured economic indicators, right? And so psychologists now argue, okay, well. You know, why are we measuring these economic indicators if not because we think that they're related to happiness, right? I mean, why, why do we care about money if, I mean, it, it, we think it's related to some good things that, like, eventually are related to well-being. So the first, the first step is to measure it, right? Because then once you start measuring it, so that's one goal of some policymakers is to measure it. And then um, that's, that's, we're sort of starting that step. We haven't really gotten to the step of actually major interventions. Um, we're not there yet, but, yeah. But I'd be interested. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, great question. So this is a question about brain, the brain. Um, well, I'm not a neuroscientist, but, um, and there's not a lot of work with imaging and happiness, but um, it's sort of beginning to be done. And so, for example, uh, research has found that there are sort of circuits in the brain that are sensitive to reward, and so, um, and so researchers are now studying those. Um, one of the, um, I think one of the lines of research that I think is most relevant actually is not on imaging. It's a, a researcher at uh, University of Wisconsin, Madison, who does EEG with, uh, with, with participants. Um, and what he found is that, what he has been finding is that people who are happier have more activity um, on the left side of their frontal cortex than on the right. So there's an asymmetry, and if you have a bigger asymmetry, left versus right, uh, that's associated with happiness. Um, and he did a, actually a meditation intervention once where he had people learn how to meditate and measure this asymmetry before and after. And after they learned to meditate, they became sort of even more asymmetric. So there was even more of an asymmetry, left versus right. So that's kind of cool. So showing that learning to meditate you know, in effect, change the brain. So, um, so again, I'm not a neuroscientist myself, but um, there's more and more work, actually, in every field, economics, uh, neuroscience, um, sociology, you know, of course, psychology, developmental, um, that, is, that is studying happiness. So, um, so I'm really looking forward to kind of the next 10, 20 years and what people are going to find. Any effect of food, specifically chocolate and beer? Um, 
you know, food does make people happy, um, and, but temporarily, right? So um, one, one thing I haven't really talked about is that there's certain things that are kind of self-reinforcing and other things that are transient and some other things that can make us happy but can have costs, right? So obviously, if you have too much chocolate or too much beer, you'll be happy in the moment, but it's going to have costs that will make you unhappy in the long term. But there are other things that make you happy that are kind of self-reinforcing and self-sustaining. So doing acts of kindness, for example, have all kinds of social consequences that can make you happy sort of in the long term as opposed to the short term. But in the short term, certainly, food makes you happy. But I don't know any research of like particular certain kinds more than others. But are we, I just need to know what time it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.